0: My message today is kind of a follow-up message from a message that I preached back in September of 2021, September 19th, 2021. The title of that message was God's Problem, and I've been thinking and and reading and considering um, some of the things that I quoted during that message, and I wanted to further develop it. I mentioned last Sunday uh, what my topic would be. The title of today's message is Worshiping a Monster, and um, what I mean by that is a reference to um, a, a man particularly, a man that uh, grew up in, um, or at least at a, at a certain point in his life, uh, grew up in our circles, Bible-believing circles, uh, professed faith in Jesus Christ, became a Baptist pa- pastor, a Princeton Baptist church in Princeton, New Jersey, uh, and then, and went to, you know, he went to seminary before that, and, uh, and then he, quote-unquote, lost his faith, and uh, ended up becoming uh, America's most well-known agnostic. That's how he has identified as many circles, yet in reality, it seems to me that he is simply an atheist, and uh, he has written books. One of the books that he wrote is called God's Problem. How the Bible Fails to Answer Our Most Important Question. That came out in 2008. And that God's Problem was the title I used in that message in September of 2021. But his problem, what he claims is God's problem, is really Bart Ehrman's problem. And unfortunately, it is also the problem of many that grow up or or become familiar with uh, Bible teaching and it's also a problem that, you know, that some people have uh, that just consider God. So, uh, in fact, it's, this is not a new issue. In fact, we're going to look in Scripture. This has been a problem for some for years and years since the beginning. But uh, back in 1940, C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Problem of Pain. And by the way, that's that's Bart Ehrman's problem, Um Why We Suffer. His book that came out called God's Problem uh, came out in 2008. And uh, here's a blurb for that book. Bart Ehrman details his journey from Christianity to agnosticism because he could no longer believe in a Christian God that permitted his creation to suffer. So many reasons, shouldn't a father save his children undue pain? That's his argument. Now in a World Magazine uh, critique of that book or comment, World Magazine made this statement. Darwin and John Mills and many other atheists and agnostics argued that, that very thing. They loved to wax eloquent about how they, in good conscience, could not worship a monster. They loved denouncing from this ethical high ground, using the fruits of the Christian tradition, such as compassion and the equal worth of all human life, to pummel the faith. And so that's what Bart Ehrman is known for Uh, he has very vigorously renounced the God that he claimed to embrace and represent as a Baptist pastor. And now he goes around lecturing and uh, does all kinds of debates defending his position. He's written many, many books. Listen to some of the names of the books that he has, uh, has written. How Jesus Became God. The Exaltation of a Jewish Preacher from Galilee. So this is not the incarnation, how God became a man. This is how Jesus became God. Here's another book called Forged, Writing in the Name of God, Why the Bible's Authors Are Not Who We Think They Are. Other book he wrote, Misquoting Jesus, the story behind who changed the Bible and why. And then another book, Jesus Interrupted, revealing the hidden contradictions in the Bible and why we don't know how the, uh, why we don't, what we don't know about the Bible and who wrote it. Uh, gives you an idea where he's coming from. And uh, unfortunately, uh, many young people are being influenced by men, such as, if not directly, Bert, Bart Ehrman, uh, and they are renouncing their faith. And uh, this idea of, you know, from a moral high ground, in other words, using the very fruits of what Christianity, the hallmarks of Christianity, compassion and that kind of thing, they're using their very thing to slam Christianity. And again, that that statement just really stuck to my crawl. How I in good conscience cannot worship a monster. Um, But that's how many people think. Some of them are well-meaning and and sincere, uh, but they are really, really condemning the God of the Bible. And here's the bottom line. Uh, When you study what Bart Ehrman teaches, he is denying the very premise of Christianity now remember the twofold premise of Christianity, I've said this many times. This is very important. The twofold premise of Christianity is number one, that there is a God. And then number two, that he has made himself known to mankind. In a, and by that, those those words hold meaning. He has revealed himself in Scripture in a way that we can understand and comprehend. Now there are some that profess Christianity. That will say, I believe there's a God, but you, you know, how can we really know uh, if He's not this way or that way? They don't believe He's really made Himself known. They might say they believe the Bible, but they really don't believe the Bible articulates, or that you you know, so many people have so many different interpretations, and they come away with from so many, you know, saying so many different things. In other words, they don't believe God has really communicated through His Word. Well, I'm here to tell you that He has. So here's the outline, and by the way, next Sunday, Lord willing, it's, it's a different message, but it's kind of going along the same, some of the same principles, and you'll hear that next week, but here's my outline today. Number one, the critic's accusation. Of course, critic number one being Bart Ehrman, but so many others are, are standing where he stands, and, and I want to address that. So the critic's accusation. Number two, the critic's arrogance. See, there is a major, the very thing these people are condemning God for, the God of the Bible, is the very thing that is going to come back, to use the world's phrase, to haunt them. The very finger they are pointing at God, the very clenched fist they're pointing at God, the very accusation that... If there is a loving God, how can he allow all this stuff to go on? Will someday come back to torment them. And then thirdly, and that is this, the critics' agony. So let's jump in. Uh, Look at Romans chapter 12. The Bible says, Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves. Avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, Vengeance... And the word revenge, payback, payment, vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. Now look at what God's saying. He's challenging God's people to not take vengeance. Don't, don't take justice into your own hands. Somebody hurt you, the Christian message is what? Forgive those who trespass against you. Turn the other cheek. It's just the opposite. And God's saying, listen, don't avenge yourselves. In other words, people are going to do you wrong. Wrong is going to happen, and you must not take matters into your own hands. Why? Because God says, vengeance is mine. And then what's his promise? In that context, we've all been hurt. Some of you may be way more than me been hurt. And a message like that, you you, you tend to say, what, I'm just supposed to ignore it? Am I supposed to say that what they did is right? That's not what he's saying. He's saying, listen, vengeance is mine. I will repay. He's talking about this whole matter of justice. He's He's saying, I am a good judge. I am a good God. And don't worry. Justice will happen. Not right now, but justice will happen. So if you have been wronged, no matter how wrong you've been, God says, he's saying, I'm not ignoring that. I'm not turning a blind eye to it. Do not worry. I will repay. I'll I'll make sure things even out. I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, we can act like Christians. If thine enemy hunger, feed him. Why would I feed someone that has opposed me and been very cruel and mean to me? Because God says, vengeance is mine. If an enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirsts, give him drink. And then, this is an oft misunderstood phrase. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Uh, That might sound like a bad thing. Because today, if you took hot coals and poured it on someone's head, uh, I think it would universally be received <laughs> as not being a nice thing. Uh, but there are, when you understand the, the context and the importance of coals and, and how people carry things on their head and that kind of thing, um, the context is the next verse, the next statement, be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. Is That's an explanation of that. He's not telling you you really want to get back at people, you really want them to suffer. It's not like he's saying, listen, if you do good to your enemies, God's going to really punish them even more. It's not saying that. Now, if you want that, which sometimes we do, don't we? What's the Bible say? Proverbs says, Rejoice not when thine enemy falleth, and let not thine heart be glad when he stumbleth. See, that's sometimes we have that heart. That, that we so want to see justice, especially from our perspective that we don't think straight. And I believe that's the ultimate issue. When people look at what's going on in the world, when people see some of the horrible things that have taken place in history, and they think that's not right, are they wrong by that? No. A lot of bad things have happened. A lot of horrible, horrible things have happened. And that the problem is people like Bart Ehrman see that and they think if there is a just and holy God, he's ignoring all this. And so what they do is then they, they say, well, then there must not be a holy God. And they become agnostic or atheist because the reasoning is if God is a holy and loving God, he wouldn't allow his children to suffer. That's the biggest. That's what C.S. Lewis, in his book, God, um, In his book, The Problem of Pain, in fact, here's a blurb for that book, because this is the issue. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Problem of Pain, examines a universally applicable question within the human condition. If God is good and all-powerful, why does he allow his creatures to suffer pain? That is a legitimate question. But if you reject God as he has revealed himself in the Bible because of that, then you don't understand God as he has revealed himself in the Bible. Because he tells us, give place unto wrath. And that's exactly what Bart Ehrman is not doing. And that is exactly what a lot of these people are not doing. They're not giving place to wrath. They are, they are limiting God to their, their perspective. And you know what? We're, the, Bart Ehrman is not the first to do that. This is what I'm going to share with you today, and we probably won't go there, but in Psalm 73. Psalm 73 is a psalm of Asaph, and Asaph struggled with the same thing, but he was a believer. He looked all around him and saw good people suffer, and he saw wicked people prosper, and he really struggled with with believing that God was good. It's a lesson he had to learn. In fact, the whole, when you go to Psalm 73, all except for verse 1, because it starts out, he starts the psalm with what he learned, the conclusion, truly, God is good to Israel, truly to anyone who's of a a tender heart. I forget exactly the wording. But as for me, he says, my feet were almost gone. I well nigh slipped when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He goes on and waxes eloquent about that, how, you know, I, I looked around and I saw people doing evil things and quote-unquote, getting away with it. And I thought, this is just not right. And he almost he almost gave up on God. Sadly, there's a lot of people that have had that same conclusion and they have given up on God. Bart Ehrman and so many others. Some that grew up in this church, probably. So we want to address that. I want you to take your Bibles and turn to 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9. And this is where I submit to you that this issue that Bart Ehrman and so many struggle with is not new. It's been going on for ages, and Peter addresses it in, in his time. That people had had problems like this for a long time. Second Peter chapter three. God, he's talking about judgment, justice. He's talking about the ultimate judgment. Verse uh, 7, 2 Peter 3, 7, But the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. So Peter's saying, listen, bad people are going to get their just due. Ungodly men. Uh, and then he says, But, beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing. And here's, here's, here's a problem in his day. And it's the same problem today. Be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. In other words, our timetable is not God's timetable. You see, Bart Ehrman had a desire, and many agnostics and atheists had a desire for justice. They saw a lot of the things that were going on, the Jewish holocausts, So many things historically, you just look at it and you see innocent people suffer. And in your being, you scream, that's wrong. Something has to, someone has to pay for that. That's not right. That can't go unpunished. Are they wrong? No. But the problem is, as soon as you allow that to bring you to the conclusion that there must not be a just and holy God because he hasn't done anything about it yet is where you are premature. Look at verse 9. The Lord is not slack. He's not dawdling. He's not delaying. And that is that is the accusation, is it not? You know, I mean, these if you're going to write off God because he allows injustice to take place then are you not giving him a timetable? saying if there if there really was a holy and just god that punishes sin he would have done it already. Hitler wouldn't have gotten away with it and 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 you on and on. In fact there's a verse in, in Ecclesiastes chapter 8 verse 11 I quote it so much. And I'm going to quote it again because it really is the crux of this but there's also a flip side to it. Here's what Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 11 says. Because sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily. What's that mean? Because sentence, judgment, against an evil work doesn't happen right away. Therefore, the hearts of the sons of men is fully set in them, that's the evil, fully set in them to do evil. In other words, because Judgment doesn't happen immediately. Now, it would have been great if, back in, in, you know, when Hitler was on his rampage and the Jews were being exterminated, if all of a sudden lightning came out of heaven and, and struck Adolf Hitler and burned him to a crisp. And, uh, you know, it's kind of a nice, nice thought to even say that, you know? guy was evil. And, and all his evil henchmen. I mean, if, you, if we saw that, we say wow justice has taken place we might feel a little better about it but that didn't happen and and multitudes millions of jews innocent little children went to their death in gas chambers i mean it is it is horrible but what does god say the lord is not slack concerning his promise promise of what promise of Justice, promise of retribution, problem of paying back, problem of making things right. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise. Oh, yeah, then what's his defense? Because he is being accused of being a monster. And multitudes of people in good conscience can't worship him because they see him as a monster. They see him as being slack, as, you know, what are you delaying? Here's the answer. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness. But here's the reason He is long suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. There's one reason why justice has not happened right now, and it's because of God's long suffering. It's not that because he is not holy. It's not because he is not punishing sin. Or he's, he's just winking at it and ignoring it. The only reason is that he is suffering long with mankind to give them the opportunity to repent. That's the whole issue right there. It is true that a good father... Would not allow his child. In other words, the intentions of a good father, and and Jesus even acknowledged that in Matthew seven eleven and Luke eleven thirteen, Jesus used the illustration of God as a father, and and how it relates to a human father. He said, "If ye then being evil, remember he talked about if a, if a son wants bread, and I'm going to mess, mess up the uh, pictures of the words, but if a son wants bread, would a father give him a rock? And, and he went on there. And then the application was, he said, If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father, shall your Father which is in heaven, give good things to them that ask him? If you want to use this moral high ground of suffering, and that if God was really God, he wouldn't allow any suffering, then you don't understand. And and what you're, you're your demand that justice take place immediately is going to come back to haunt you. The Bible says this. Make no mistake about it. Psalm 19 and verse 9 says, The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. And then it's repeated in Revelation 19 and verse 2. For true and righteous are his judgments. See, this whole idea of long-suffering is what's fa- it's, it's the thing they fail to take into account. So so many people, they it's like they've given God a timeline. And they're saying, Lord, if you don't act by this amount of time, you don't work on my schedule, then I'm writing you off. And And they're violating. They don't understand, folks. Justice is going to happen someday. Oh, it will. Remember, Israel, for 430 years, the Jews cried out to God... Because they were living in, as slaves in Egypt under bondage, and they cried out to God for over 400 years. Now, 400 years—the um, the average lifespan at that time. You know, we can read in the Old Testament about guys like Methuselah who lived 900 years old. Many others lived six, seven, eight hundred years old. But at this time, when Israel was into bondage. The, uh, the flood had already happened, and human lifespans were broken down. Nobody lived 400 years. So you imagine all these generations that died crying out to God. God, deliver us from this slavery. Can't you hear us? Think how many people passed away. And yet, you know what God says in, in Exodus 3 and verse 7 after the 430 years? The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people which are in Egypt and have heard their cry. I wonder how many of those Jews during that time had cried out for decades of their life towards the end of their life. I wonder if any of them had rejected God because they cried out for their whole life and then never saw deliverance. And so they assumed there is no God and if there is a God, he hasn't heard me because that's what many are saying today. When they see injustice. But what did God say? I have surely seen the affliction of my people and have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters. Folks, I submit to you that everyone that's clenching their fist at God because he hasn't judged the world yet, he hears the cries of injustice. And the only reason he hasn't lowered the boom it's because he is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish. Ah, therein lies the key. Mr. Bart Ehrman and many like him, you're going to reject the God of heaven because he hasn't judged people on your timetable? Someday you're going to stand before him. And here's the thing that's missing in these people that are calling God a monster. They're demanding justice for everyone else. They have magnified everyone else's offenses. And they have totally ignored their own. How tragic. So the the critics' accusation, then we see the critics' arrogance. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but as long-suffering to usward not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. I want to read to you a quote. I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 1 while I'm reading this. This was from a theologian um, talking about this idea of of what we're talking about. He says, perhaps you don't believe that God is like that. You believe that he is good, kind, and loving, and he's not. The wrath-filled God of holiness as revealed in Scripture. But if you reject the biblical revelation of God... You will be left with a worst dilemma. In other words, people that just reject there's a God, which, by the way, if you're an atheist, you have come to the position where you say, there is no God. The God you envision, the one who doesn't hold people accountable, will still allow children to be abused, but he cannot do anything about it to help them, as he does in Scripture. Your idea of God isn't loving and kind. In other words, those who say, God is only love. He's only love. And they don't bring out his holiness. He, he says, um, an unbiblical God whom you believe is heartless and doesn't believe in ultimate judge, justice. Any judge, here's a key point, any judge who lets criminals go unpunished isn't good. He's evil and should be prosecuted himself. If he's a good jo- judge, he must see that justice is done. Understand that. The very grounds that people are calling God a monster because they don't believe he's just, because he's not punishing sin, They've, some, have, some have not become atheists. They've made up a God of their imagination. My God is all love. There's no places such as hell. God does not send people to hell. In other words, God is not judging. God is all loving. He's just going to wink at everyone and let everyone. Come on, the floodgates are open. Everyone goes to heaven, even those you reject me. That's their that's idea. And so their, their God is not a good judge. And so, in other words, if everyone went to heaven, that means God's not holy and he's not punishing sin ever. I want you to look at Romans chapter 1, where God lays out. It, it, it's interesting because what I believe as I study Romans 1 and 2 is that the first three chapters of Romans, he's laying out Condemnation. So it's gonna he's gonna present the gospel. But what happens in chapter one is he's really really kind of talking to the Jews about the Gentiles, and he's doing something that I believe is gonna happen on Judgment Day. Our own words for those that reject the gospel and Christ, our own words are gonna condemn us. Here's what he's doing now. Imagine you're a religious, righteous, self-righteous Jew. And he's talking about the Gentiles. Look at Romans 1, verse 27. Likewise also these men, leaving the natural use of women, burning their lusts one toward another, men with men, working that which is unseemly, and receiving themselves the recompense of their error, which was meat. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient, being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, Full of envy, murder, debate. And these are wicked people, right? I mean, he's, he's saying everything of anybody that has any kind of moral code at all. Murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whispers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things. These are the bad guys, right? And by the way, if you're a parent, disobedient to parents. Wow, I always marvel that's in there murderers, evil people, connivers, backbiters, and people that are disobedient to their parents. Without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, he goes, and then in verse 32, he says, who know in the judgment of God that they which do such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. Now, we're going to see in a minute, Romans chapter 2, where God is setting up the self-righteous Jews because he just went through a list and every Jew unitedly would say, that's evil, that has to be punished. And then we go to chapter 2 and he says, you do the same thing in your heart. In other words, folks, every one of these people that's pointing a finger at God or clenching their fist and saying so piously, I cannot in good conscience worship a monster, talking about God, because he hasn't executed justice yet. Think about it. Every word these people utter, every book they write, condemning the God of the Bible who is presented as holy. In fact, listen to this. Bart Ehrman, even in his condemnation, if I can find this quickly, he says this. Just give me a minute. I know it's on here. I'm I'm really wrestling with how long do I just keep looking at my notes because I know it's on here. And when's the point where the space for me to repent yeah that's right um oh man anyway in in one in his books this one with god's problem he he talks about how the bible gives us contradictory explanations of the suffering of people why god allows suffering and he doesn't realize he's you know he's like the prophets believe god is justice and he's going to demand judgment and he lays all these things out which he makes correct observations about each one Thinking that they are contradictory, but they are not because he's removing the factor of God's long suffering. He's condemning a God that is only holy and just, and therefore he must punish sin immediately. And that's not our God. There was a story in the in the um, early England, fifteen fifty five. This guy was born. His name was John Dodderidge. Died in sixteen twenty eight, and he became a judge in England. And apparently he had his mannerisms during the court processions, which he presided, he became known as the sleeping judge. Uh, maybe he had, like, lazy eyes or he just... His whole manner, while the court proceedings were going on, in fact, he got a reputation for it, and that's why they called him the sleeping judge. Because during the proceedings, people that were looking up on the bench, it, it looked like he was asleep. It looked like he was, like, dozing and not paying attention, and it gave the impression that for uh, so many people that stood before him or that presented their case during the proceedings, they they lost hope. They thought, how can I expect justice when this judge is up there sleeping? But here was the thing, and and you say, well, why wasn't he removed? Because there's actually a good judge. Here's what would happen time and time again. People would have their, you know, they'd present their case and the lawyer would present their case and, you know, the the defendant or whoever it was would be in despair thinking this guy's not paying attention, he's half asleep, and then he would utter his proclamation and he would astound everyone like, oh, he was not sleeping at all. (laughs) He was very much paying attention and very much aware of the law and it was just his manner. Like he was... He was thinking things through. And apparently, he would make profound statements. And I mean, people were getting justice, and they didn't think they were. You know, that's exactly what is happening right now. People are under the assumption that our God is asleep, that he's not paying any attention to what's going on because he's allowing all this to take place. Now, look at Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. This is going to be the critic's agony. Folks, you know, I've thought about this so much. Like people like Bart Ehrman are condemning this monster because they can't in good conscience, you know, worship someone who allows these things to take place. And they're not realizing that God is, he's just long-suffering. And by the way, that means he's giving you a chance to repent. Look at Romans chapter 2. Now here, we just read the end of Romans chapter 1, and we've got all these self-righteous people listening and saying, Oh, they're all pointing the finger and condemning. Yeah, yeah, these people, these wicked people. And then, and then Paul says, verse 1, Thou therefore art inexcusable. Wait a minute, we're not talking about me, we're talking about them. That's the problem. Thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest, for wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself. For thou that judgest doeth the same things. Now the Jews were very big. On external purity but inside their heart was just as corrupt as next guy and by the way all these self-righteous people that are condemning god and condemning like a hitler don't realize that their own heart is wicked they are sinners but because sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily Therefore the hearts of the men, in other words, people people just continue in their sin because they think they're getting away with it. Now I want to I want to quote that, Ecclesiastes eight verse one kind of has a flip side. And in other words, I believe that just the opposite is true. Because reward of a righteous deed is not paid back immediately, therefore the heart of the sons of men gets discouraged and wants to quit. In other words, because just as it's true that people are getting away with evil, that was Asaph's problem in Psalm 73. Look what's happening. God can't be good. Well, in the same way, people that do good and it doesn't seem to pay will stop doing good or their tendency is to get discouraged and give up on God. I want to close with this. This is an illustration. I know I'm out of time, but you grant me a few minutes or you can just scoot out quietly, and and I will not mention you by name. (laughs) One of my favorite illustrations of late uh, just kind of came to the surface about nine years ago in an article. It actually started in 2010. It actually started at the turn of the century, 1911, I believe it was, somewhere around there. And the story is about a missionary named, um, no, his name was not um. His name was, uh, there we go again, William Leslie. Some of you may remember this. I I love this story. And an article came out in 2014 based on a trip that was done. Let me just read to you this story. This man, um, in 1912, medical missionary Dr. William Leslie went to live and minister to tribal people in a remote corner of the Democratic Republic of Congo. After 17 years, he returned to the U.S. a discouraged man, believing he failed to make an impact for Christ. He died nine years after his return. So here's a man that, in 1912, went to become a medical missionary in the Democratic Republic of Congo. He labored for 17 years, visiting remote villages, teaching and going into villages, preaching the gospel. He ended up having a falling out with one of the local tribes. He didn't see... Any fruit from those 17 years. And he quit. And he went home, which was in Canada. And then he died nine years later. And his whole thought was, I am a failure. I worked for 17 years. I gave my heart and look. Nothing to show for it. And then in 2010, a group of missionaries... A missionary exploratory team went to this, these deep, remote places in the Congo, expecting to not really find. Uh, from everything they read, that you know, they, they weren't expecting to find any Christian witness, and they spent uh, you know quite a long time, weeks and weeks, going in, and they found the most unusual, unexpected thing. Not only was there the knowledge of Jesus Christ there were churches scattered throughout that whole place. In fact, there was even a 100-seat stone auditorium that back in the 1980s was packed with people coming and, and having revival services. Just amazing. And the, guy, and the people that went were, were surprised. They were not expecting, how did this happen? And they talked to different people, and they found out it was a missionary, and some of the people didn't know the guy's name. Just the name William or something. So they came back and they started studying. And they, they discovered that this was, this was all the result of one man, William Leslie, going into there for 17 years and preaching the gospel and just being faithful. And this man died thinking he was a failure. Isn't that, isn't that tragic? But you know what? He wasn't a failure. And what really matters is someday he's going to stand before God and he's going to hear what I just shared with you. I mean, wouldn't it have been great if the exploratory team had done this like the year before he died and said, William, you're not going to believe this. Listen to this. His heart would have left. He would have died thinking, yes, I was not a failure. But he didn't. Now, folks, too many people give God a timetable and, and use human methods to judge whether something's just or not. I, I want to I remind you that Paul said that to the Corinthians, judge nothing before the time until the Lord come, who both will bring to light the hidden things of darkness, make manifest the counsels of the heart. He's going to bring it all out, motivations and everything. And then shall every man have praise of God. So whether you are Frustrated and ready to write God off because bad things have happened to you? Well, just hold off. Let God be God. He's going to pay back. Or whether you're discouraged because you feel like your efforts—you're doing all this good. You like Asaph. You've cleansed your hands for nothing in vanity. No, you have not. Let's let God be God, and He is not a monster, folks. Folks, when Judgment Day comes, I don't want to be in Bart Ehrman's spot. I hope he gets saved before that. And so many like him that are clenching their fist at God. Oh, I can't in good conscience worship a monster. Folks, on that day when you understand he's not a monster, but he is a perfectly holy God, and you're busy pointing all the fingers at all these other people, you're going to be judged yourself. And that is not going to be a pleasant thing if you don't get his mercy beforehand let's pray father thank you for your word help us father we we struggle just like William Leslie did sometimes in thinking is it worth it all we do good we we love people pour ourselves into people we we try to do right and uh, sometimes it seems to backfire and we wonder if it's worth it all or maybe father there's some that they've been treated wrong and in their mind uh, the fact that God allowed it makes him this terrible monster, uh, and they've magnified other people's sin and minimized their own. And Lord, I pray that you would help those people that have condemned you and that have written you off because of your long-suffering, because of your mercy, and I pray that they would take advantage of that and repent of their own sin. So they, not, they will not be receiving justice, but they will be receiving mercy. Thank you for being a long-suffering, merciful God. Help folks to get saved that have not yet been saved. Help people to repent of their sins and trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And we'll thank you for it. We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen.